0: Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak, I'm still in love with life.
1: From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking state of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, Daniele pays a visit to Nick Holderbaum's Prime Philosophy podcast, and we've got the tape. It's a great conversation that will get you up to date on all things Bellelli, including missing jujitsu during quarantine, the importance of having a sense of humor, especially in difficult times. So be kind, keep your word, and keep washing your hands. Here we go. And now... Asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers, and my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli, as we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Taoist podcast, begins now.
0: Hello and welcome to another Drunken Taoist episode. Episode 180, here we roll today we do something slightly different this actually was recorded uh, originally not by me this was uh, Nick Olderbaum I'm totally taking a guess how to pronounce his last name because you know me and in the English language from the Primalosophy podcast Um, we did this for his podcast but then we had a good time on the conversation so I asked him if we could use the audio also for the Drunken Taoist feed and here we are so this episode doubles both for his podcast Primalosophy podcast and ours Uh, before we get things going let's say a few thanks where thanks are due starting with onnit.com if you guys go check out onnit.com forward slash Taoist you get an automatic discount on the whole wide range of awesome products that Onnit carries of course Are speaking of all-time sponsor short design t-shirts with the code warrior you get a discount on their amazing funky t-shirts and more recent but very appreciated grasslandbeef.com these guys carry a whole wide variety of products if you don't want to go grocery shopping you want to have things like meat chicken sent to your door you can go through these guys grasslandbeef.com of course, if you shop on Amazon, it would be very sweet if you use our Amazon link. Um, what else do I need to tell you? I think I just want to get the episode going, so let's just jump into it, and there will be a tiny bit more, a couple more things I want to mention at the end of the episode. But for now, let's get rolling.
2: All right, Daniele Bolelli, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. Anytime. Thank you for having me. So I thought we could just start with the simple question. What are you missing most about
0: pre-quarantine? Hands down jujitsu. There's not even a close second.
2: Now, are you able to train and roll on mats in your garage or anything like that or watch training videos virtually?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm dragging myself with training videos, I'm drilling with my lady, but you know, it's not the same. It's fun, it's cool, but it's not the same.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anything in closer proximity than rolling around in jujitsu. Sadly, uh, that will have to wait. Mm-hmm. I thought we could talk a little bit about your family history and obviously you can't believe everything you read on the internet, but sure. from what I've read, your grandmother was not fucking around.
0: Yeah, you can definitely say that.
2: So when she was a teenager, she found her boyfriend murdered. Can you tell us how she spent the rest of her teenage years?
0: When she was uh, about fifteen, sixteen, something like that. She—that's when um, you know everything went to hell in. It. I mean, everything had been going to hell for a while in Italy. But when things got more heated, her cousins joined the resistance. They got killed fighting Nazis, and then uh, she started. Her father had. Um, He operated a factory where they manufactured hunting weapons. Mm -hmm. So she would then tell um, the resistance when the weapons were going out so that they could intercept the trucks and steal them and have weapons. And then, you know, her boyfriend, when she was 16, uh, was, um, was a resistant guy. And eventually the fascists realized who he was killed him, chopped him to pieces, put him in a bag and delivered the bag outside her house. And I think they didn't think she was in the resistance. I think, because otherwise they would have killed her too. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was just a message of like, oh, for people who are associated with this guy, this is what happens to people who are into it. Now, of course, it had the exact opposite effect on her. And if anything, she started becoming more active in the resistance movements in Italy. And she would... uh, carry weapons, Uh, you know, they would smuggle weapons when, you know, for example, they would have to go... Resistance fighters would go kill a fascist judge and then they would have to quickly disappear and run in the crowd and they would pass her the weapon because, you know, as a lady, you are less likely to be checked. So she would do things like that. In other occasions, she would carry bombs to be planted against uh, fascist and Nazi targets. So, yeah, she she had a curious life but you know like most people who went through that stuff not that real to talk about it you know it's like it's uh, sound a lot more romantic i think afterwards i think for the people who were who lived it it's kind of something that they regret having been part of not regret making the choice they would make the same choice but regret having to be in that historical context
2: Right. It's like a lot of the times these warriors or these people of strength don't realize it until after the fact. They don't realize it when they're in it.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because I remember growing up and, you know, she was uh, kind of pessimistic, kind of cranky, kind of, you know, she had their uh she, she you know you would see her and you would never think it you know you would mm-hmm. never imagine that that was uh, what she what she grew up with because essentially you know she was still really, really young when this stuff was happening the, there's a funny story she told once that um, she was carrying this uh, bag that was packed with bombs. And some uh, fascist police officer saw her and she was, you know, a young, pretty woman. So she was like, oh, let me help you, young lady. And she's like, no, no, seriously, I'll carry them myself. And like, no, 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 I insist. And so mm-hmm. the cop grabbed the bag full of bombs, take it all the way to her apartment. She's sweating bullets in the meantime. And, mm-hmm. you know, by the time they put the bag down and he turns around, that bag, you know, it was during the war. So the bag is pretty much kept together with scotch tape. Because yeah. probably 30 million years old and all broken up. And it started opening up just as the guy turned his back and left. So she was like, yeah, that was a close call. Oh, boy.
2: It's a, a, a wild story. And it just goes to show times are different. There's always, You could always be worse off. You know, we're all oh, bitching yeah. about being stuck in, in our house. But just imagine. Yep. So switching gears, you said you find it odd that in history we discuss war ad nauseum, but relatively little about sex. So has sex always been taboo or have we just been waiting for a historian like yourself to do it justice?
0: I think there are multiple factors. I mean, on one level, in certain cultures, there's definitely this weird uh, Puritan streak where it's not to be discussed. But also, most stories that we tell ourselves tend to thrive on drama, tend to thrive on conflict, tend to thrive on that kind of stuff. So warfare fits the bill. Uh, happy, mellow life, including great sex, don't exactly fit the bill of a story with a beginning, a crisis, and a resolution. Mm-hmm. So it's a little harder to, to captivate the attention that, you know, this drama seeking attention that many human beings um, are drawn toward. Mm-hmm. So I think both factors are at play. One, that it doesn't fit the typical story based on conflict, which human beings tend to really dig. And two, sometimes many cultures, there has been a bit of a Puritan vibe associated with it.
2: Mm-hmm. Speaking of Puritan vibes, when writing 50 Things You're Not Supposed to Know, was there a religion or school of philosophy that you decided not to tear into because you have maybe like a, a too big of a soft spot for?
0: No, not really. Like I don't, I don't really have attachment to any ideology because to me, ideology, you know, if there's a stupid aspect of an ideology, well, that's that's something I don't want to, I don't want to endorse. I don't need to wave anybody's flag. I don't where I have to buy into their stuff a hundred percent. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of uh, take what's good, reject what's bad kind of thing. So if I find uh, 40% that's good in a particular school of philosophy or religion, I'll take it. It doesn't mean I have to take the other 60%, you know. So I have zero problems making merciless fun of stupid ideas wherever they are found, whether they are found in ideologies I generally don't like or whether they are found in ideologies I like
2: yeah i agree with you find practical wisdom and discard what's useless and that shows with your just the title of your podcast the drunken Taoist." i mean you you seems like you managed to take your work seriously without taking yourself too seriously and remaining witty and playful
0: that's the goal right to me to me ability to laugh a good sense of humor ability to enjoy life in the middle of all which doesn't mean that you don't consider the drama because of course there's drama all around us all the time so it's not to say that you are running away from it or pretending it's not there but sometimes, you know denying it the power to just spoil your good mood
2: you don't want to trust the frowning buddhist statue you trust the laughing buddhist statue
0: yeah because ultimately it's um you know, life is what it is. There, is. You're going to have your moments of absolute ecstasy. You're going to have your moments of heartbreak. Uh, there's no way to avoid it. And if uh, figuring out how to enjoy the whole process, despite all the heartbreak, all the pain, all the horror, all those things, without denying them, because, you know, that's one thing I really can't stand about all the positive thinking folks who are... Everything is for the best. Everything is going to work out great. Uh, no, it's not a real problem. It's an opportunity. I'm like, no, those are real problems. Those are terrible things. It's not going to work out for the best, or maybe it will, but that's far from a guarantee. You know, I, I'm i very annoyed by the kind of uh, self-delusion that seems to be prevalent. So what I dig instead is to be brutally honest about the harshness and the horror of certain things. And then once we have established that, then figuring out ways to move past it. Yeah. You know, then figuring out ways to have fun in spite of it all. Not by denying that they are bad, which to me is uh, just a lie. You know, I don't like being lied to. Is by saying, okay, they are bad. Now what?
2: And I kind of find it annoying sometimes, too, when we look at these ancient schools of philosophy or wisdom where, you know, they tell us not to be attached to anything and i think it's in our nature it's in human nature to be attached and we can't escape that
0: absolutely there's a if you have zero attachment to i don't know think like your kids you're a monster you know of course you have attachment uh the goal is to make attachment not be such an overwhelming force that it you spend your days just worrying and stressing and unless things turn out exactly the way you want then you're miserable forever you know I think lessening attachment to certain aspect of life is a noble goal, right. eliminating attachment is impossible B, If by any miracle you pull it off, you're a freak
2: right. and it's it just makes me think of you know the tighter your grasp on you know something slippery or like an ice cube, for se, the faster it's going to slip away
0: for sure. so no, in fact, I think there's something to be said about lessening attachment mm-hmm. and not being completely dependent on the idea that the world is going to cater to your expectations, that's clearly a good idea. I just have an issue with uh, you know the idea of completely getting rid of attachment and leaving, because that to me is a, our ability to love is almost inseparable once you pass a certain spot to some degree of attachment. So lessening, great. Eliminating, eh, I don't quite buy it.
2: Yeah, attachment is fine, as long as every now and then you're meditating on the fact that it's transient. Yeah. Now, you say the harmony between mind and body is something that has nothing to do with the obsession for fitness. The body is not a product, it's an experience.
0: I mean, I think there's a level there where the body is sort of the, the original psychedelic tool. You know, you can change a state of consciousness rather dramatically just through the kind of energy that flows through your body, depending on how much adrenaline is going through, how many endorphins are going through, how much. So working out whatever kind of working out that is, something that makes you sweat, something that makes you tap into the balance of endorphins, adrenalines and a bunch of other things, that is not just about working out it's not just about your muscle it's not just about health it's about your mood you know it's uh-huh. what it does to your state of consciousness and i find that uh, very fascinating not that the other goals are not interesting you know clearly it's better to look good than to look like crap and it's better to be healthy than to be unhealthy that's right. a given and i have nothing against those goals but but we can also move past that there's also more to it there's also about how you feel about life and Granted, I'm not telling anybody who's in a deep depression, just go work out and everything is going to be great because, you know, I wish it was that easy, but it certainly helps a little, you know, and sometimes uh, even helping 2%, that's all the breathing room that you need and it helps some. So no, it's not a miracle cure for everything, but yes, it does. uh, It's better than the alternative.
2: And Nietzsche would add to that: the disciplining of thoughts and feelings is virtually nothing. One first has to convince the body. We have to find the harmony between mind and body.
0: Yeah, because we got both, right? And both are useful. And there's no, you know, the same way as the super athlete who has an amazing body, is perfect balance all the time, has this kind of innate, instinctive physical wisdom. Without Any kind of uh, intellectual development without any kind of emotional wisdom is very limited. By the same token, the ultra nerd who just live in the library all day long and never seen the light of the sun, there are problems with that too. Why should we be one or the other? Why not take the best from all of those?
2: You don't seem to neglect either or. So maybe you found this harmony between mind and body. And do you think that's what people mean when they say flow?
0: I mean, yeah, to me, it's just weird that we are even making it a thing. It's like it should be be kind of natural. Like that's what everybody does, right? You want to develop your mind. You want to develop your body. You want to develop your emotional intelligence. They are part of who we are, rather big parts of who we are. Right. So I'm even puzzled that like why wouldn't somebody do all at the same time? Why would you just pick one? That just doesn't make any sense to me.
2: The term holistic is a little bit beginner mind.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's life, right? Life doesn't speak just an intellectual language or a physical language or an emotional language. It speaks all of them. Mm-hmm. So why not get well-versed in all of them?
2: To quote Zen monk Ikkyu Sojin, in war, there's no time to teach or learn Zen. Carry a strong stick, bash your attackers. And is that what you experience in your life when you're rolling or when you're with your girlfriend, for example? Maybe sometimes it's better to leave logic out of it?
0: Totally. I think that's one of the beautiful things that I enjoy about that kind of stuff is the um... You know, I spend time in my head a lot. My mind is always running. There's always a little too much. So when I catch those breaks, it just feels so good. You know, it's like for some people, meditation works and great if it works for you. I tend to struggle with sitting meditation. doesn't quite work the same for me. Mm-hmm. But like something where I'm fully physically involved and it slows down my mind. It slows down the thoughts. It's it's like kind of like weeding your garden, you know? It's like I start chopping out all the extraneous thoughts that are too much that are crowding my brain and just the good stuff remains.
2: When do you find that peace from mind?
0: Primarily, I think, is yeah, working out, is training, is um, uh, definitely, you know, great sex would do that. Um Sometimes nature, being in nature. One thing that I'm very looking forward to is if I can scrounge up the money, I would love to get a sauna because I really like intense heat. I don't like it in day-to-day life. Like if I'm in a desert, I'm gonna die. I just hate it. But I do like it as a ceremonial space of just going in for like half an hour or something and being intense heat and sweating like crazy. Mm -hmm. That's something that I feel cleans my brain very well so that's another thing i would like to do
2: i love that you brought that up because i feel the same exact way it's like if you spend 30 minutes in a sauna you know a few times a week that's almost forced meditation the only thing that your brain can think about is the present suffering that you're going through
0: (laughs) (laughs) right yeah
2: maybe it will kill the coronavirus while you're at it So I wanted to talk about martial arts and the alteration of consciousness. You've said internal martial arts speak the language of the psychedelic body. What is more psychedelic than the ability to feel an opponent will attack before a single gesture is made?
0: Yeah, I think the body in general is so... There are certain things about our bodies that are mysterious, that kind of show the way consciousness is mysterious. The fact that uh, there are... You know, like the whole idea, and again, I'm not a big fan because you see like 10 million videos on YouTube about like weird guys who think that they can uh, use their chi to defeat <laughs> opponents. Yeah, that's not how it works, but yeah, at the same that's, that's time, Mortal yeah, right. So, yeah. that one, I get it that there's a lot of silliness surrounding that, but there's also something to be said about just energy. And, uh, you know, when you feel design, And I don't know what it is, to be honest. I don't really have the scientific understanding. And But what I do feel is like, for example, if you do standing meditation, you know, when you keep your hands out and you keep... You feel this tingling. That's not just the blood. There's more to it. And like, if I even with like my other grandma not the world war ii grandma the the other one i remember like she's still alive she's 95 years old and anytime i see her and she you know you're 95 so you're sore everywhere there's something that always hurts and i'll just put my hands on her, and i'll just focus and i'll start feeling something right that moves through my body into my hands and i can time like Like every single time I do that, I'll tell her, do you feel something? And maybe I'm not feeling it yet. And she's like, nope, don't feel a thing. I mean, I feel your hands. That's nice, but I don't feel a thing. like, yep, me neither. And then like the one time, I'll ask her a few times, and the one time when I am feeling something flowing through, she's like, whoa, now I feel something. I feel Hmm. all this heat entering my body in a very different way. I'm like, yep, that's exactly what I'm feeling. What's happening? I don't know. I have no idea. But she's happy. Makes her feel good. I feel good doing that, so it's one of the things that there are energies in our body that are I don't think we fully understand how they work.
2: Mm -hmm. Does this apply when the opponent is is you,
0: say, with an impending bout of depression or hopelessness? It helps. Sometimes it's it's tricky because, of course, if the instrument that allows you to perceive something is the one that's about to be overwhelmed with something, it's a lot harder. To, to, you know, to be in a center position where you are in, that's when you feel stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you don't feel things when you are, if you are in emotional chaos, if you are all messed up in various ways, your ability to feel anything is going to diminish dramatically. So of course, it's a lot trickier with oneself than it is with somebody else. Mm -hmm. You said your wife was more
2: fearless than you could ever be. And one thing she admired about you was your emotional bravery. Mm -hmm. Why were you so fearless when putting your emotions out on the table? It seems like you knew this was the only path to true love.
0: Yeah. Emotions never really scare me. I never understood. I mean, again, we all have our own phobias, right? Some people are really freaked out by certain things. some people by others to me being like a hundred percent open to another person and just putting my emotions on the table. And that never bothered me. I don't find it. So in that sense, I don't find it brave because to me, it's not something scary. So it's not something that I have to overcome through bravery. It's something that comes fairly natural. But I do see that it doesn't really come fairly natural to a lot of people. So I'm like, oh, I guess that is a thing. But, you know, I kind of don't get it because it's not something that I have to struggle with.
2: Mm -hmm. do you
0: think that's a cultural thing i think there's um, more of that in some culture than others there's definitely you know if you are encouraged to express your emotions is one thing if anytime you start expressing your emotions somebody's like just shut up and be happy then of course you know you're gonna bottle that stuff up and squash it and it's not gonna come as natural so there's definitely some upbringing stuff that come into play
2: the main reason to become warriors in the first place is to be strong enough to turn our vulnerability or sensitivity into a source of joy rather than of suffering.
0: Yeah, because ultimately, you know, there are 10 million motivational speakers, books, courses telling you how to become more effective and stronger and these and that. But then the question is like, more effective for what? Stronger for what? Because, you know, I don't really want uh, the next one to be Hitler to be more effective and stronger because while effectiveness and strength are great goals, ultimately it's what you use them for that makes a difference. You know, if the goals you use them for are to make people around you happy, to make kids laugh, to enjoy life, then great. Then effectiveness is awesome. If you are using it just to become a more effective uh, sneaky bastard who exploits everyone else, eh, you know, you're still effective. There's something to be said about that, but that's clearly not for a particularly pleasant goal for anyone other than, you know, your own selfish stuff.
2: And that goes for all of wisdom or philosophy in general. Is it useless knowledge acquisition or are you using it to improve your and others' quality of life?
0: Yeah, that's my num, you know i hammer on that topic over and over and over in multiple ways because i see that in academia like so much of academic learning is really just pointless because mm-hmm. it doesn't have any effect whatsoever on anybody's happiness or quality of life i see it with a lot of this motivational speaking where they are big on like teaching you ten thousand techniques to be more effective but not how to become a more decent human being I, you know, I'm in everything to me. The big question is, why are we doing it? Is it bringing joy to anybody? Is it improving anybody's quality of life? Yes. Great. Let's do it. Not, then what's the point?
2: No, I'm with you. Sometimes the academic level philosophy
0: is just not only over my head, just doesn't align with being happy. Yeah. And to me, the deepest wisdom to some degree needs to be simple. And there's a difference between simplistic and simple, you know, not simple is not necessarily what everybody would think is simple, you know, it may require you some serious ability to think critically and all of that. But ultimately, if you cannot communicate the deepest wisdom you can ever acquire to a kid or to some old person who has completely different life experiences from you, then I question how good that stuff is. Because to me the good stuff is universal. It's something that anybody who has a body, anybody who has a mind, can to one degree or another relate to. And you know, you just have to find the right words and examples that make sense to them. Because of course they have different life experience and different vocabulary. But ultimately, you know, it's not rocket science. It's somewhat simple at the end of the day. Now again, simple is easier said than done. Because you know, when we talk about things like balance, you know, the concept is not difficult but to actually be able to pull it off that's a whole different story.
2: Yeah, if you're explaining something and it seems
0: complex, it's probably too complex for you. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like anything, you know, most of the stuff that works is based on great basics well developed and taken further.
2: There isn't that much that we need to be concerned about in life.
0: Yeah, ultimately that's true as well as the opposite, right? Because our lives are so inherently bound to you know there are ten thousand forces that can throw us off and kill us and so to some degree what you're saying may seem counterintuitive to a lot of people but i think ultimately it does make sense because it's the point of yeah there's always going to be something that will kill you there will always going to be something that you can control well most stuff you can control so once you accept that, then, um, then you can probably relax and enjoy. And again, way easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Because of course, we have a survival instinct. Of course, we have uh, many, many, you know, we want things to work out a certain way. We don't want to lose the stuff we like and love. So of course, there's that aspect. But on the other hand, ultimately, there has to be an understanding that no matter how tight you hold, you are never going to be able to protect yourself from all of these things. Everybody gets old, everybody gets sick, everybody dies.
2: Yeah, we can tr- we can try to protect ourselves, but we can never ensure true safety. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's that difference between fear and danger, is there's millions of things to fear, which most of them will never actually turn into real danger.
0: Mm-hmm. Sometimes there are very legitimate fears, and sometimes they're just fear as straight up paranoia because you're spending your days worrying about stuff and 99% of them will never materialize.
2: I was listening to episode 34 of the tr- the drunken Taoist about your wife, Elizabeth, and you said the greatest gift she gave you was fearlessness, but the fearlessness came from a loss of hope. And you answer hopelessness with a defiant smile and a raised middle finger. Can you unfold this for me or maybe put it into words?
0: The root of fear you know, why are we afraid of stuff? Usually we're afraid of stuff because we're afraid to lose something we care about. Whether it's loved ones, whether it's health, whether it's money, whether it's whatever that may be, right? There's something that we want and we are afraid that either we're not going to get it or we have it and we are afraid to lose it. So when you lose stuff, when the, your worst fears already materialize, then what's left to be afraid of, you know? It's like, I mean, yeah, things can always get worse. I'm sure you can dig a little further. But, you know, when you you take away, like, really core things, when you, like, in that case, you know, if you have uh, uh, your spouse dying in front of you, you don't really, there's not a whole lot that you can be scared with anymore after that, at least for a while. Because it's like, what else are you going to do? Kill three spout? You know, it's like, what else can you throw my way that is worse than what has already come? Now, that's a dangerous question to ask because I'm sure we can always find something to make it even worse. But, you know, psychologically, it feels like you're in this state of like, yeah, the, my worst nightmare is already, is already here. So, right. you know, I can relax now because I have really nothing to be afraid of at this point. Now, that, of course, works for a while. Eventually, when life gets good again, when you start enjoying things again, when you realize that you have some good things and you become attached to them again, then fear creeps back in. Because now you do have stuff that you are afraid to lose. Maybe you didn't for a while, but now you do. So it's a very tricky game because uh, the better our lives get, the more you have reasons to fear. And the worse your life gets, the least you need to be afraid of anything.
2: So that's life, huh? Finding a way to transform hopelessness into smiling defiance over and over again.
0: Yes, because ultimately, again, we don't control anything. Everything gets taken away from us. So that moment of in spite of it all, like one of my favorite lines is good old Zen Master IQ says, throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. That's powerful because he's not saying there is no such thing as a hellish state of consciousness or where things get really ugly. Yeah, there is. He's not the. He's not saying I can show you the seven steps to never end up in a hellish situation. That's not what he's saying. Then yeah, it will happen. There's nothing I can do about that part. But I'm going to psychologically. I'm going to find a way to smile even in the absolute worst circumstances. Uh Which doesn't mean you're denying the pain. The pain is real. But that doesn't mean that you can't smile at the same time.
2: So being truly badass is having the strength to be kind even when life is not.
0: Yeah, that's something I'm huge on, is the idea of kindness. Because ultimately, we all go through stuff. We all have our ideas. We all have our philosophy, religions, whatever that we're attached to or we like. We all have... But to me, ultimately, the only thing that counts is, are you a decent human being to those around you? Are you, regardless of, like, I don't even care what you believe as long as I see if the actions speak to me much louder than belief or words or anything. It's like, if you manage to be kind to other people, to animals, to everything around you, You are an awesome human being. I don't care whether you label yourself X ideology or Y or whatever. It's like you're doing something right. Mm -hmm. How you got there, maybe I don't agree with the path, but who cares? You got there nonetheless, and that's the only thing that counts. Mm -hmm. So to me, the more, you know, many people when they suffer, when they are hurt, when they get abused, when they are on the receiving end of terrible things, they get harsh, they get hard. They get vengeful in a, I want everyone else to suffer because I did. That's a terrible reaction. Uh, I have incredible admiration for people who can grow through horrendous things. And their reaction is, because I know how ugly it feels to feel that way. I don't want anyone else around me. I want to do whatever I can to make sure to help anyone else around carry a lighter load to go through life, you know, try to make things easier for them because the suffering sucks and we all do. And there's plenty of it anyway. I'm not going to shield anyone from ultimate suffering, but if I can make their life a little bit easier, that's a very, I like that a lot as a goal. So to me, something as basic and simple as kindness means the universe to me.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's much easier to help somebody who's coming from a dark place when you're coming from a place of love.
0: Yeah. And, and also if you know that dark place, cause you know, some people may be very well intentioned, but they're like, you know, you're saying, you may even give good advice, but the person is like, you've never been here. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. This is an entire, you know, yeah, that's stop feeding me your sweet crap because you don't know what I'm going through. You know, you have never been in this place. Right. You can, you know, if somebody has been through all that, then you have to take their words in a different light. And
2: you can be that lantern to, like, illuminate the other person's heart that is housed in darkness.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's like, look, I know all that. I feel all that. I felt all that. I know it way too well. Mm-hmm. But let me show you something. And I'm not denying that any of that is real or true or what you're feeling. That's all true. However. Let me add something to that. Let me give you something else that maybe you can, a tool that you can play with while in this state. Mm-hmm. And again, if you have been there, uh, it carries a very different weight from somebody who has maybe can explain it well, Can but you know, they read it in a book and that's it.
2: And I like how you dropped that quote earlier. If I end up in hell, I'll find a way to enjoy it. To me, it's my understanding, he's sort of like the Zen monk with Zero fucks.
0: Yeah, pretty much. He's um, very fun, you know. Very speaking of kindness, you know, there's no one story about him being obnoxious to. You know, he seemed like he had a good life. He enjoyed life. He was pretty feisty, funny, and ultimately a fairly nice person.
2: Mm-hmm. If someone is enlightened, they should want to experience life to the fullest, like him. Yep, absolutely. And that's a sign of virtue is what you do when no one's around aligns with
0: what you do when they are. Yeah, which is another thing that I have a hard time understanding because to me, it's like if you espouse a certain moral code, then nobody forced that moral code on you. You know, if you decide to sign up for it, it's because you believe that that's the best way to live life. Then why wouldn't you live like that? You know, to me, is uh, my personal moral code tend to be rather flexible in some ways in the sense that i don't share the same moral rules that a lot of people go by but the ones that i do believe in i'm monstrously strict about you know there's not a chance in hell that i would ever break my own moral code there are certain things that to me there's no like oh wait but that one time i was weak no Mm -hmm. if like again i don't want to make it take it too far but in my mind I take the whole uh, samurai idea a little too seriously perhaps but to me it's like if you break your word there's no sorry. It's like sure sorry is you stick a foot long sword in your belly and you slash from side to side samurai style you know Mm. or if you want to be slightly more civilized you go the yakuza route and you chop off your pinky. Okay then I believe you're sorry you know it's like okay you made a mistake, but to me, like making a mistake when it comes to matters of giving your word of honor or of deep things like that, I don't know, man. It's like, that's like, I'm never, I don't give my word lightly, but I've also never broken my word. So if I do give my word is because I'm 110% sure that I'm going to stick to it. Mm-hmm. Because to me the alternative is, if you fail to stick to it, then your kind of your whole value as a human being has just gone down the drain. So to me, I don't know how you come back from that. I mean, I'm sure maybe there's a way, but that's where my pinky idea kicks in. But uh, you know, it's not something that you can come back from lightly.
2: We should try to engineer our inner circle with people who share that same moral code.
0: Yeah, because it's like there are there are certain lines you just don't cross, you know? And I have very few of those, you know, there's a lot of things where I have flexibility, but those ones are, like to me, for example, I'm not even a big believer, like I don't necessarily think that monogamy is the best way to be. But if somebody I want to have a relationship with makes it very clear that in order to be with them, it needs to be a monogamous relationship, then I'm going to think long and hard about it. But then if I tell them, yes, okay, fine, I, I'm going to stick by that, then there's not a chance in hell that I'm going to break that. You know, Whether I'm 100% convinced that monogamy is the way to go or not, once I give you my word, there is no, oh, but you know that one night, oh, but you know what, I meant it except for that one who looked really hot. It's like, no, man, you gave your word. There is no breaking it. Or don't give your word. or be honest with who you are and say, look, I can live that way. That's not what I believe in. That's not who I am. I would, um, I want to have an open relationship and then people, are, you give people a choice. You know, they either agree or disagree, but you are being honest with your values. You know, yeah. and what I don't understand is why, why espouse a value if you're not going to stick to it?
2: And just as an aside, I thought it was beautiful how you had a conversation with your wife about how you didn't really believe in monogamy, but I guess that love was so great that it kind of trumped that value.
0: Yeah, I'm like, you know, what? as a philosophical idea, do I think monogamy is the best? No, but who cares? This is not a philosophical idea. This is a real flesh and blood person in front of me where right now means more to me than any, you know, any other philosophical bullshit I can have going through my mind. So can I be happy living according more to her value than mine? As it turns out, yeah, it's not one that I'm going to, it's not a hill that I'm going to die on. It's not that big of a deal to me. It's more like, huh, I think that maybe other routes could be interesting, but it's not the, no, sorry, this is how I need to live by. And so it's like, yeah, let me think about it. Yeah, it's worth it. Let's do this. Ikkyu tells
2: us that one can degrade what is important by raising the wrong things to sacred status. What do you think he means by wrong things?
0: He was huge on uh, arguing with the Zen establishment because all these guys were very big on the trappings of spirituality more than the real thing. So he burned what was his certificate of enlightenment, which was something that Zen students would work for forever to have their master certified that they were enlightened. And then Nikki was like, this is bullshit. Let's be real. Certificate of enlightenment, what are we talking about? You know, this is not. So it could be that he's referring to just basically, you know, putting on a pedestal their own priorities.
2: So you've written a lot about warriors. Is there a common mission that all warriors are bound by? And if so, what would it be?
0: It's about mastering conflict. What interests me is mastering conflict in a particular kind of way, in a way that's very life-giving. That's not just about overcoming an opponent, but it's about then using that strength and discipline and willpower you have developed to make life better for yourself and everyone around you.
2: hmm do you think all warriors are tribal warriors at heart? I guess I'm just bringing up how important social connectedness is.
0: Well, and I think that's where the co opting kicks in is because every, like, what all those things you are mentioning to have as a common denominator is the desire to belong to something. Yep. So if you don't have a tribe, if you don't have a family, or maybe if you do, but to some degrees... That same attachment that you build to that can be created through belonging to some kind of ideology, whether a religion or a school of thought or a philosophy. It can be created through the idea of membership in a nation. It can be created through, it's all the same stuff. I mean, as paradoxical as it may sound to me, the Hell's angels or the lady going to church every Sunday, they are looking for the same thing. They are both looking for membership in a tribe.
2: Mm -hmm. So when you need a break from it all, what's your go-to? Is it a bottle of organic red wine or going for a gelato with your daughter?
0: All of it. It all sounds very, very, very good. Yeah, ever since the pandemic started, my consumption of red wine has gone dramatically up.
2: Who are you most excited to see at your post-pandemic party?
0: You know, I just moved into a new town. So I'm very, you know, I'm seeing this place that's going to be my home. And I'm inside the house and I look outside and I see all the places that I would like to check out, all the people that I would like to meet, all of that. And none of that is happening. So I'm just really excited at the idea of exploring my new surroundings, meeting some of the people who live here, that kind of thing. That sounds wonderful.
2: If you'd be so kind to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now?
0: Since, um, you know, the History on Fire podcast, one of the two podcasts that I host, is so research intensive. There's so much you have to read. To It's basically every two or three months you have to become a super expert in one topic that other people have spent years studying. So, you know, in every soft and every uh, basically all the time, I have to read like 10 books on one topic Mm -hmm. and take copious notes and do all of that. So, usually, then when I have free time, the last thing I want to do is read another book because I'm reading. And by the way, most of the stuff I read is tedious as hell because most history books are not exactly written by great writers. So, there's a lot of stuff I'm reading that I'm like, you know, you dig through tons of mud to find the one speckle of gold and then I'm going to put together in a narrative and hopefully I'm going to do a good job so that people listening feels like they are getting the one giant jewel of these little specks of gold put together but in order to do that the, what I have to do is not particularly fun so mm. I'm not really doesn't happen too often that I get to read something for fun where I'm just like wow that was a great book um that, unfortunately, that's why I'm trying really hard to get ahead, to work extra hard and get ahead with the research and with the episodes so that then I can have a six or nine month lead where I have some free time to do more what I want to do.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the preparation that goes into the podcast is everything. And I can't imagine the amount of prep work that goes into those History on Fire episodes.
0: Yeah, it's insane.
2: So if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you
0: choose and why? hands down, good old I.Q. Sojun that we are mentioning, because it's just too fun. He's uh, he's like a character that, to some degree, I feel like, come on, somebody wrote him because he's too good. You know, most people's biography, you find, even great people, you find some really weird dark shadows there, or you find Iq's is just fun in a way that seems to be non-injurious to anyone else, not somebody who's fun, but also messed up. In just a good human being who had a blast of a life and uh, didn't do damage to anyone else. I dig that. And so the idea of sharing Saki, I guess, because that's his thing with good old DQ, that would be fun.
2: Oh, yeah. I was hoping you could leave us with some walk-off wisdom and share not afraid.
0: In the beginning was Fear. The fear that everything that has a body experiences once it realizes we live in a predatory universe. A universe in which absolutely everything gets to be eaten. If not by the sharp fangs of a predator, then by time itself. And fear became our god. And it began to rule over our lives. Shrink our willingness to dare. And rob us of the beauty of it all. Fear is written in the deepest layer of our DNA. You can't run away from it. You can't escape it. It's so pervasive that plenty of people try to exorcise the demon. Religions, philosophies, advertisements, motivational speakers. They all tell you that if you make the jump and follow their cure, you'll no longer have anything to fear. They tell you that there are no monsters hiding under your bed. They promise you safety from everything you fear. They promise you a sense of empowerment. They promise you victory against all odds. The reality is that they're all trying to sell you something. The monster is indeed under your bed, after all. The reality is that you have every good reason to be afraid, because everything you fear is on your tracks right now and will eventually catch up to you and destroy everything you love and everything you are. Welcome to the world, motherfuckers. So why not afraid? Wouldn't it be more appropriate, scare shitless and rightfully so? Because being scared doesn't help you. Reality is uglier and harsher than anything we like to admit to ourselves. And yet it's pointless to be scared since your fear will not protect you. Fear is only useful if it alerts you of a danger you can avoid. But if there's no possible way to avoid it, if it's inevitable that it will crush you no matter how hard you fight, then what's the point of being afraid? If you have no hope of survival, then what's, what's left to be afraid of? The only thing you'll succeed in doing is in spoiling this very second when the forces that will destroy you haven't stepped onto the stage yet. Yes, you will not get out of here alive. But so what? All the more reason to celebrate right here and right now Let's pop the champagne before all hell breaks loose. Squeeze every last ounce of orgasmic ecstasy from the present moment. And when the monster finally climbs out from under your bed, at least you'll have a good reason to smile before it devours you. You're already dead. Let's have a party in the meantime. Let's do it. With that, it's a wrap for the day. Uh, Please remember, if you guys use uh, Amazon for any kind of shopping whatsoever, if you could use our link, an easy way to remember it is dbamazing.com. dbamazing.com automatically takes you there. Also, uh, who else do I want to give a shout out to? Of course, Snow Roast Coffee. Those guys are always nice to us. Snorost.com with the code TAO, T-A-O number 18, for a discount on your coffee products. And last, but most definitely not least, let's say thank you to the sweet folks who have donated since the last time. Let the pottering begin. We got Samuele Rudelli, Jim D'Amico, Froggy Styles Production, Philip Sorkov, Matt Bray, Jesse Ratakangas, Yanni Linima, Luis Pesquera, Robert Primos, Aaron Weisner, Christopher Parcel, Jonathan Waterloo, Stephen McKee, and oh god help me, how do I pronounce this one? Uh, let's give it a shot. Ashdin Halkink? No, let's try again. Ashdin Halkik? maybe i have no idea in any case thank you thank you thank you to all of you guys who have been supporting us it's very appreciated the rest of you if you want to join the sweet and brave folks who donate to the podcast you can go at paypal.me forward slash my initial letter d as in danielle d bolelli so paypal.me forward slash d bolelli very very appreciated with that I'm just going to send you off to your day. Hopefully this conversation made it at least a 0.1% better. That would already achieve our goals. If it's more than that, even better. And with that, have a wonderful day.
1: And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken douse podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Danielle at D-Bolelli, that's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at RichieMon1, R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! To hear this no you don't <laughs> in questo cazzo in questo caso, le providenza di dio
0: Duncan. can show you the way
1: huh? oh man and that scary to think
0: <laughs> nice so don't kill people do that instead <laughs>
1: This was great, fucking awesome. And I love this character.
0: I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been having a great hour here. I completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're outro. Oh, we're outro. Okay, sorry. So that's... So let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tomstone with uh, Val Kilmer and... Uh,
1: uh, your accent, it just... Whatever that movie is you were trying to tell me about. Can you translate
0: it? for me, please?
1: I believe the word was Tombstone. Yeah, that one, <laughs> exactly. Tombstone.
0: Just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> now, most everybody thought... <coughs> Sorry. We'll... <coughs> we'll do a cut on there.
1: Or not. That was something else.
0: No, <laughs> that's maybe too powerful. <laughs> What do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you.
1: Get back to work. Funky. Podcasting. It's like radio, but you can cuss. Why?